Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. And welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm thrilled that you can join us today. We are going to be talking about making everyday fun day when dealing with dementia and caregiving. And so you're going to want to tune in. But before I introduce our guest, I always want to do a couple of quick shout outs. So one is big, huge thank you to the Mark Arneson Band who for allowing us to use their song Clarion Call. You can download that on any of your favorite music platforms. Uh, to show your support for that group. They are, they are absolutely fantastic. And for those of you that are new to our show, Alzheimer's Speaks is about sound information, not just sound bites. We want to have a real conversation. So we chat for about an hour here with our guests so that we can go in depth to really learn the details behind whatever the project or topic that we're talking about, business, service, or tool. Um, everyone is welcome here. So maybe, just maybe, you'll be our next guest. Now, if you haven't noticed, we have finally rolled out our new website. Actually, it's the same name, alzheimerspeaks.com, but it's much easier to maneuver. There you'll be able to find free resources all on one page from tools and tips to different types of videos um, to programs and services, or if you're interested in marketing and branding, and even about my mom, the, the mother behind the mission here. Some of you might not know that my mom lived with dementia for 30 years, and that's actually what got me into this space. Also, I want to give a shout out to Saltbox TV. If you're not familiar with this great new free online streaming service that was designed specifically for seniors, please go check it out. And then also Mods Ventures is still is open. They're giving seed money, fifty dollars to $100,000 in three different categories uh, for dementia-focused um, projects. So go to modsventures.org. And then if you are looking for a support group, I still do Arthur's Memory Cafe, which is sponsored by Arthur Senior Care on the second and fourth Wednesday of each month at one o'clock central time. And then also I work with Brookdale uh, North Oaks. We meet the last Wednesday of the month at 10 a.m. Central at the Shoreview Community Center. And that actually has respite for people. So you can come and you can also bring your loved one with dementia as well. And if you haven't finished your summer plans yet, the memory camp still has openings August 15th to the 18th. And you can call them at 715 715- Four seven nine eight two five five, and that is for people with dementia as well as their families. We are going to hear from the adaptive equipment and caregiving corner, and then I'll be right back to introduce our guest. 
I love the footbar walker, and let me tell you why. It is the option for my toolbox that I've been waiting for. Let's be honest. There are some clients who, despite our best rehab efforts, just aren't able to return to performing a sit-to-stand transfer on their own. Now I can offer my caregivers an easier, safer option that doesn't involve hoisting their loved one up from a sitting position. I don't recommend this walker for all of my clients, but I do recommend this walker for those caregivers looking for an easier, safer option with transfers. I would also encourage other therapists to add this walker to their toolbox. It's kind of like having my own mobile parallel bars for the client to pull up on. Whether it's a family caregiver at home helping a loved one with Parkinson's or dementia, CNAs in a long-term care facility assisting their patients, or therapists adapting to client and caregiver-specific needs, we now have a very safe and effective option to offer in the Footbar Walker. Check this product out at thefootbarwalker.com. That's it for today from Adaptive Equipment and Caregiving Corner. Have a great day, and don't forget, if you can't do it, adapt it. Okay, so we are back and I finally get to introduce you to our guest. We have Dr. Linda Ganzen-Mueller with us, who is a psychologist whose practice focuses on senior citizens, their families, and caregivers. And she's done that for more than 12 years now. Linda also started a series of books and presentations designed to help families work together to build their own personal best plan for handling difficult situations. And we we know families have those many times. So today we're going to also focus on her book, Every Day is Fun Day with Grandma Stella. So we have a lot to learn. So sit back and listen and enjoy. Well, Linda, I am so excited to have you on the show today. You're doing some really cool things. And um, before I get into my line of questions, I always like to ask all my guests if they've been personally touched by dementia in their own family or circle of friends. Well, for me, um, my experience with dementia is mostly professional. You know, in my career as a psychologist, I've spent the last 12 years really working almost exclusively with senior citizens, their families, their caregivers. And so in that amount of time, there have been dozens of people, many, many people who uh, and families who I who I've dealt with, who have been going through it and who I uh, sort of took the journey with. Yeah, it's kind of hard not to walk alongside them. You know, it's, yeah. it's such a personal thing uh, for people to, to even speak about. And um, so I, I kudos to you, because I, I really think Thank you. more people and more families could be helped by talking to a psychologist, mm-hmm. you know, in this process, but there's a little taboo still attached to psychology for, for some people, not for everybody. Have you, let me ask you that question, just because I brought that up. Have you found that people are pull back a little bit from coming to see you and, and talking about, you know, care, caregiving and things? I think that for me, very often the relationship starts with the son or daughter of a person with Alzheimer's calling me up and saying, you know, my dad has finally agreed to talk to somebody about the things that they're going through. And over time, I, I tend to be more involved with families than I might be if I was, you know, doing counseling with somebody, you know, in their 20s, 30s, 40s. Um, and so I form a relationship with the family. And then uh, as time goes on, they're more likely to come to me with questions and to ask me what's going on, you know, and to ask me what to do and, and 
I also have the opportunity, you know, having done this for so many years and being part of a networking group um, to be able to help them if they need help, if they need any kind of professionals to come to the home or to give them some advice, you know, they're, they're able to come to me for that as well. So when people come to you originally, are they coming for the person diagnosed versus the caregiver then? Very often that's the way that it goes, but often, you know, really it becomes a job sooner or later where you're dealing with the whole family, right? Mm -hmm. It's, uh, and so, you know, that this is a very emotionally charged diagnosis and, Because of that, you know, my job, what sets me apart from other professionals who also help with, you know, advice about the practical things and the activities of daily living, um, my job is to help them out with the emotions that go hand in hand with the diagnosis. And, uh, you know, one of the very difficult things about the diagnosis of dementia of Alzheimer's is that we know, we know from the moment that we get it, what's going to happen. We know that there's no cure we know how it ends. And so there are a lot of emotions really linked uh, to this diagnosis and it happens very quickly. And so I very often end up involved with family members who find it very difficult to take on the job of, of giving care, of being part of a care team for someone living with Alzheimer's. I know in my experience, I've always found that people want to push the person diagnosed towards the, the psychologist because it's their mm-hmm. problem. And mm-hmm. yet, And then after a while, everyone kind of realizes, no, this is, this is all of us here. This is all of our communications. This is affecting all of our thoughts and dreams and perceptions of, of life, you know, as a whole. And so we all really need that support. That's a, a very big part of the problem of giving care is that caregiving is never even, right? It's never equal. And we have to realize that everybody is involved everybody is involved in this. And, and my hope is always to get the whole family to kind of get together and decide, well, who needs what, who's got what to offer, um, who's not going to offer, and, and how do we make the most of the situation, right? Clearing that, that family conflict, that's, that's a big part of uh, doing psychological work with families dealing with a dementia diagnosis. Very true, because you hear so often there's kind of one lead or primary person, and then mm-hmm. the others are back there. Like, like I was primary for my folks. My mm-hmm. dad had brain cancer. My mom had dementia. Yeah. And my brothers weren't overly involved by any stretch. And mm-hmm. I didn't realize the resentment that I kind of built yeah. up over the years. And then I was really trying to get them to, you know, just be like me. Step in. Come on. It's, you know, <laughs> help out. And the day I let go of that, oh my gosh, was such a relief. Cause you know, I'm not responsible for their journey. I'm responsible Mm -hmm. for mine and how I'm going to interact. Um, but it was, that was a, that was a long haul. I mean, my mom lived with dementia for 30 years and and I learned that way too late in my eyes (laughs) with that. So what got you interested in working with the older generation to, to start? Well, I was, I was lucky when it came to that, you know, my degree is in school and community psychology. And I always thought that I would be working with gifted children in the Mm -hmm. schools. And, and I could talk about that for hours too, but I did what a lot of school employees do. And that is get a job for the summer. And I was very fortunate that I had my friend, Dr. Barbara Kaplan, help me get a job in assisted living homes, uh, working with patients with various stages of dementia. 
you know, and, and so that's how I got started with that. And being honest, I went for my first day to meet my supervisor and a few patients and to get trained. And, and I did not like it. I, I didn't think I would go back for my second day. And sure enough, I did. And I went back for my third and my fourth. And by the end of the second week, I knew that this was the population I wanted to work with. I was really very lucky about that. You know, I, uh, th- this good fortune kind of pointed out what should have been really obvious, right? Because I, I say jokingly, you know, that when I was growing up, I had friends and they liked me, but their parents loved me. <laughs> and so, you know, and, and my parents were old enough. They were 40 when I was born and I'm not giving away any secrets. They tell you they were old enough to be my grandparents. And my grandmother, who I spent summers with, was old enough to be my great grandmother. And so it's it's very comfortable place for me to be, you know, mm-hmm. with with those generations. And I love them and respect them. And I think they're sweet, kind, generous, patriotic, polite people who we have a lot to learn from. Oh, I agree. Yeah, I I agree. I was always when I was really young, I I was always just drawn to my elders. I don't know why. I just yeah, since I was just a small child. And even, you know, dating and stuff, I would date older people and people like, well, what's with you? And it's just like, I just don't (laughs) feel aligned with people my own age you know? And so it was just, it was very, very natural for me. Plus I had really fascinating elders in my family that were all Mm -hmm. different. And and that shocked me because everyone else's elders kind of fit, you know, the, they were kind of categorized of what they look like and what they did. And, and the women in, in, on my side were all very, very different. And that, that always fascinated me as well you know, with that so curious mind. Their, their stories can be fascinating. Just, you know, that, that's another thing that I love is, is to hear these stories about people who really were around at a time when, when the world changed. Yeah. Great, great and fascinating stories they have and what contributions they made. Yeah. I mean, they had to fight for the TV, let alone the color TV yeah. and you know, all, all of those types of things and the, the wars right. and the, the telephones where there was actually an operator connecting you and, there's, I mean, yeah. kids now look at, and you know, if they do see a payphone on the street, they don't even know what it is, you know, That's oh, right. yeah. what, what is that? <laughs> so we do have so much to learn and, and respect, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, for them. Now, can you dive in a little bit deeper as to your role as a psychologist? So if somebody, you know, says, Hey, we've got an appointment, um, what happens? Is there like a pre-screening that's done before mm-hmm. the appointment or, is there a, is there kind of a format? Cause I know a lot of people, when they talk about going to a psychologist, again, there can be some stigma, some, some families, there's not that, but for a lot of families, mm-hmm. there's still a lot of stigma out there. So yeah. what, what could they expect? Well, once they come to me, like, like I said, typically speaking, because my patients are older and a lot of people will do research online, right? That tends to be the, the people in their 40s, 50s, 60s who are doing the research and, and they reach out to me first. And either they'll say, I'm dealing with my mom who has X, Y, or Z. And, you know, I really need some help coping with that. Or my mother is struggling, you know, because she has this diagnosis or my dad has this diagnosis. And so we meet. And sometimes I meet um, with the parent and the person who called, 
because sometimes they're just more comfortable that way. But it's really up to the person who will be the patient to decide what's going to make them comfortable. And I tell them all the time, you know, the first meeting, maybe the second meeting, maybe into the third meeting. That's the time where it's up to me to decide, you know, am I the right person for you and for you to decide if I'm the right person for you, you know, and and do you feel comfortable with me? You know, Mm -hmm. is it okay to answer these questions? Do you feel okay talking to me? And, and who in my, who in your family can I talk to as well? Um, Because like I said, it really does become a family situation, particularly with a diagnosis of dementia. And so typically the first session, there will be questions that I have to ask everybody. And then I give them time at the end to just talk to me about whatever they want to talk about. And that's usually when they decide, yes, this is something that I really want to do or, or no, it's not something I'm really comfortable with. Okay. And how long is a typical session? Typically speaking, certainly the first session is an hour. Mm -hmm. Um, Other sessions are 45 minutes. They can run an hour, but particularly, you know, if somebody maybe has a little trouble paying attention or focusing, we can go as short as a half an hour. A typical Mm -hmm. session is 45 minutes. Okay. Answer that question. And again, it depends on whether family's involved. Okay. So for a person, let's say a person is coming and just newly diagnosed um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, and they're struggling with, I I can only imagine all the emotions flipping and flopping Mm -hmm. in their head Mm -hmm. with what's going to happen to their life. Um, do you talk about emotions? Do you talk about um, coping techniques for them and what is normal and what is not, you know, mm. in, in terms of uh, strategies to help them once they walk out of your office? Well, uh, when, I, when I meet with them at first, I mean, the time to really talk about strategies is earlier on mm-hmm. when they really have something to say and when they can be involved in their own care and in predetermining what's going to happen in the future. And very often that's what we talk about. A lot of what I address when I'm speaking with them, though, is also, you know, as you said, the anxiety Mm -hmm. of dealing with what's going to happen. And most often that worry is, you know, what will my family do? What will Mm -hmm. my family do with me? Will they be able to take care of me? You know, and at that point, I find it very helpful to involve the family if the patient is willing to do that because I feel that they get the most comfort from hearing from the other person, you know, from the daughter, from the son, from the husband or the wife, you know, this is what, you know, we hope to do. What do you hope that we will do? And, you know, I like to give them some good resources so that they can understand what the, what the journey will be like in the future and who is out there to help. Okay. So when it comes to preparing for the journey, do you ever like refer people to elder attorneys at all in terms of, because I know sometimes getting their, their estate and stuff in order Mm. and is there going to be enough money and who legally is going to be able to represent them? Is that something that you um, refer people to or? I, I certainly do. I'm very fortunate that I am on the board of the senior umbrella network of Suffolk County. And, and that is made up of different people who all work for the benefit of seniors Mm -hmm. and for all in all different aspects. And certainly there are many attorneys. There are people who will install bars in your shower. There are people who work in assisted living in daycare in all different aspects of uh, the care that senior citizens 
will need, particularly, you know, well, not necessarily only with a dementia diagnosis, but as they get older and as their diseases progress. And so, yes, there are many Long Island attorneys, Mm -hmm. many who will help um, with planning the estates, right? And many who will have uh, free webinars about what to do, particularly with regard to uh, a Medicaid trust, uh, which is something that's too complicated for me to understand, but something that many people with a lot of money and many people with not so much money choose to do in order to be able to do, you know, protect their assets and even to determine which assisted livings they may uh, be able to live in because we are seeing more and more uh, being cared for, you know, uh, more and more rooms being open to people uh, that are paid for by Medicaid. Yep. Wonderful. Well, that I think that is gives people such a relief to know that you're connected to different support systems too. Um, I found that in my real estate days, you know, when you could yeah. refer people, they just they just breathed easier, you know, oh, for and, sure, and uh, felt more comfortable. No, I feel that one of the most important things that I can do is refer people to somebody who I know and who I trust. I think it's one of the most important jobs that I have, uh, not just as a psychologist. I think every professional involved with, with another human being who needs care needs to know, well, okay, who out there is good and who's not. And, you know, who, who is it that you can reach out to? Mm-hmm. Do you ever get um, family members that want to come and see you, but don't want the rest of the family to know? Let's say they maybe mom or dad is meeting with you and then they decide they want to, but... Oh. And, and I mean, I know there's HIP and you can't disclose that anyways, you well, know, one, one way or the other. But I, I was just kind of curious on that, if you could talk mm-hmm. as a whole, because I think there's just so much that families don't disclose to one another sometimes. Mm. Well, um, that doesn't typically happen very much. You know, mm-hmm. if people want to speak to me, they will typically respect that mom or dad needs to accept that that's going to happen. And I wouldn't do that mm-hmm. anyway. You yeah. know, I, I, I don't like to meet with a family member if I'm already caring for another family member, unless it's together. Mm-hmm. Um, simply because you have alliance with one person over another person. And sooner or later, you know, you might just slip and forget, did this person tell me ABC or did that person tell me ABC? And then you slip and you say this thing that was supposed to be said in confidence, you know, thinking that the wrong person told you. And so people tend to be pretty open about wanting to speak to me. And I always insist, you know, that, um, if there is going to be any connection with me and any other family member, that the patient is both aware of it and okay with it, but we'll refer them out to somebody else for sure. Okay. Well, and that makes sense. Um, That makes a lot of sense with that. Now you've, you know, worked with seniors, like you said, about 12 years, which is a a long time Mm -hmm. and their families. Now you've written a a children's book now. Yeah. (laughs) So how did, how did, how did that come to be? I always find that there's usually, when somebody writes a book, something happens. There's usually a moment that just says, I got to do this. Oh, well, I certainly had that moment. Um, I was taking a course at ADRC, the Alzheimer's Disease Resource Center here on Long Island, on how to be a good caregiver years mm-hmm. ago. And I don't remember what webinar we saw or what chapter we read or what was said at first, but it just struck me, you know, how do you tell this to a child? How do you make 
Alzheimer's okay to a child and tell them, well, grandma loves you, but someday she may not know your name or grandpa who loves to play with you may not know how to play the game anymore. And I was just struck. I was dumbfounded. I couldn't think about anything else for the rest of the class, for the drive home. And, you know, for a couple of weeks after that, I was thinking about that too. And then it finally, at some point occurred to me, Hey, you know what? I think kids are better at it than we are. (laughs) Right. And so I ended up writing a children's book because it allowed me to do a lot of things because while on the surface, it, it looks like a children's book and it is a children's book. It's fun. It's cute. It's illustrated. It's written for children, but it really is multi-generational. You know, it's a book that provides a lot of information and a lot of suggestions on how to understand something and how to act and how to cope, you know, that is put, first of all, in the vernacular of a child, right? Something that they can understand because we don't want to keep them in the dark and we don't want to cry in a separate room and teach them that if you're sad, you're not allowed to be sad, right? And we don't want to teach them that it's something that we don't talk about because you want them to be able to talk about it. And so I provided this book for children thinking, well, they need, you know, they need this information. It's an important thing to give to them. But it was also meant to teach the other generations, right? It was very, very intentionally written uh, for an age group that needs to be read to, right? Because Mm -hmm. parents, you know, given the opportunity to care for themselves or care for their child, they're going to care for the child. And given a book for adults or a book for children, they're going to grab this book and read it to the child. And there's good sound information in here that I think will be very helpful to the parent as well. And by reading this book to the child, it only takes five minutes. It's a five minute read, you know, um, they are getting some advice about how to act, how to cope, what to think, how to understand, you know, and, and so it was my hope that this would be uh, a, a piece of of research, right? As of information for all kinds of generations under different circumstances, right? And there's more. There's more that I was able to do because it was a children's book, right? I was, I was able to tell it from the perspective of a child, that beautiful, innocent, accepting perspective, you know, of a child who just, you know, if you think about it, there's a reason that children are as accepting as they are. And, you know, in Psychology 101, I remember learning Jean Piaget and the theory of cognitive development, right? We learn that children up to a certain age, seven or so, I mean, they're they're new. They're new to earth, right? Mm -hmm. And they see things all the time that they haven't seen before. And they don't say, oh, that doesn't belong there. They have to accept that this thing exists, right? And, Mm -hmm. you know, one day for the first time, they'll see a dog and it's got fur and it's got four legs and a tail and it barks. And then someday in the future, this quote unquote dog is going to walk in with its fur and its four legs and its tail, and it's going to go meow. (laughs) And that's going to surprise them, but they're not going to try to get this poor cat to bark. And they're not going to reject the cat or try to fix the cat. They're going to say, oh, look at that. You know, this exists too. And I think that they're in a place where they accept the person uh, who maybe is changing or is maybe different than other grandmas they know. Um, And they just, it's a beautiful thing to be able to see through their eyes, you know, that we can accept them the way they are. I think you said it before, you know, you want to get to that point where you're like, oh, what a relief it is 
we're not trying to fix them anymore. We don't have to change them anymore. I don't have to be mad at the people who aren't helping out. You know, we can just accept that this is the diagnosis and, and move forward from there and make the most of every moment that you do have. Uh, that really is the goal. Yeah, I think kids see caring so clearly. And I think adults make it really, really complicated because yeah. we start making our list of everything we have to do. And and kids just focus on the relationship and yes. having fun. And so yeah. they don't, they just adapt. That's just what they do. You know, they just bloom and they adapt. The sun's this way. Okay, we'll lean that way. You know, it's just, <laughs> it's so, it's so cute. So I think they're, I think they are, um, powerful little leaders and teachers mm. um to the world and and yeah. and yet it's kind of like um like I like I have a movie that I show uh called A Timeless Love and it kind of mm-hmm. takes people you know off kilter a little bit because they're not expecting to learn about dementia in life because they're going mm. to a movie. And I think when someone's reading to a child or a child's reading to them, they really don't expect to learn. Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. yet it's so fluid and it's so natural. And I think some of the comments that kids can make that are so innocent, but and so yeah. poignant that it just almost slaps an adult in the face going, how did I miss <laughs> that one? You know, <laughs> because they do, they just see things so, so clearly. Now, one of the things I want to ask you um, about the the book title, because it's every, every day is fun day with grandma Stella. How did you come up with the title? Well, there are a few parts to that title, right? Uh, Fun day, right? (laughs) What was important to me when I was still working in assisted living is that I would sit with my patients and I think that they were pretty happy to see me, you know, and we would have a nice time together doing some activities. And I would usually spend some time at the end, just talking to them. And what I saw far too often was people, aides, family members, you know, going up to someone and really just um, expecting maybe too much from them. You know, people with no patience or people with the best of intentions, you know, would make mistakes. And very often it was, I thought I told you to be ready at 10. I thought I told you after the show that you had to get done. I thought, and there was just so much emphasis on, you know, how to read the clock, how to read the calendar, which I think was just very, very difficult for families to accept, maybe wasn't going to be an option anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's why I address in the book, you know, the kids say, well, mom wants, you know, grandma Stella to look at the clock and look at the calendar. But for us, every minute is great o'clock and every day is fun day. And that's just the way it is. As long as we're together, none of that stuff matters. And I think that that kind of uh, speaks again to the innocence of children, right? And then to their love of their grandparents or, or the person, you know, who in their life has dementia. Um, Stella, uh, I, I don't know anybody named Stella. <laughs> and I don't know anybody named Leo, which is the name of the grandfather in my future books. Um, but they were named in in honor of my dad, who um, my two daughters, Megan and Kayla, were crazy about my father, and my father was crazy about them. And when he passed away, he left them a letter for, for Megan and Kayla after I died. And it was the most beautiful thing I've ever read in my life, and I'm going to get choked up. But he mentions in the letter uh, the stars and how they should look to the stars and how to know which one is his 
and what to do once he knows that and once you know that information right and so Stella like stellar and Leo like the astrological sign are both references to the stars and both named in honor of my dad whose name is Jack (laughs) (laughs) oh that's neat well and and thank you you for sharing that about the letter because i think that those are so Mm -hmm. meaningful too and there's something simple that people can do you know ahead of time uh to tell people that they care you know one of the things you were talking about was you know people making comments and kind of the impatience of Mm -hmm. of, you know hey it's time to go I told you so you know type stuff is again as adults we are so task oriented and kids don't look at fun and engagement as a task they just look Mm -hmm. at it as as fun you know and and how do we get there you know and Mm -hmm. even if you got to take a a detour or side side road they're they're still going to get to that path of fun yeah, um, yeah. no matter what it is, and they're going to have a good time skipping and hopping, you know, as, <laughs> as they do it. It's, it's right. like they just don't miss a beat. Um, I, I just think they're fascinating to, to watch, you know, how they, how they engage with people. We have a lot to learn. Yeah. Okay. Now, for your, your um, second book, how far along are you with that? Well, my second book, which isn't named yet, but it is about uh, losing someone you love when they pass away. In this case, it will be uh, Grandpa Leo. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am doing this in conjunction with Camp Good Grief out here on Long Island. They've been incredibly generous, and I just can't believe the depth of all of the things that they do for children who are dealing with the loss of a loved one. And uh, the research is all done. The idea is all in my head. And um it, it's coming soon. I expect to see it within the next few months. Certainly by the end of the year, it's going to be out there. Oh, and hopefully Susan Herbst will be able to uh, come back and do some more illustrations for me. Oh, neat. I love that you're making this series for kids. I think it's so important. Thank you. Uh, I just so often I saw families and I still do where they leave the kids out yeah. At all, at all different ages, even teenagers yeah. who sometimes are watching grandparents and, you know, coming home from school and having to kind of cover a couple hours. So folks come home, don't really know why That's or right. what's going on. And they are, you know, I used to go into the school and do talks and, and they're really devastated about that because they want to help, but they feel like they've been pushed away and almost degraded in terms of what their stance is in the family. And it really throws them off, you know, in terms of what is, what is my role or why don't they trust me, you know, to know this and to help. And, and they're so dang creative, you know, in terms of how they approach things, which I think us as adults really need, you know, we need to get out of that box of this is the way you do it because we're Mm -hmm. all a little bit, we're all a little bit different. Right. Uh, Thank you. And I think that this is, it's a primary focus as it turns out, not only about uh, Alzheimer's and dementia, but as I spoke to people about, uh, you know, as I learned about grief, about grieving mm-hmm. someone who we, who passes, you know, it is so important to be able to talk about it. And, mm-hmm. you know, because otherwise we're just taught, no, don't talk about it hide your feelings, don't talk about it, I'm not going to tell you about, you know, and in some ways, again, we can have very good intentions and just want to protect our our younger generations Mm -hmm. from having this pain, but 
but really we're that's not what we're doing we're just making it harder and harder for them to talk about it or to accept the feelings that they have or even know what to what what to call those feelings right yeah, I was I was lucky. My mom always brought us to the wakes and the funerals, but she would actually get scolded by her friends. Mm. They're too young; they shouldn't be here. And in looking back, I you know, and, and uh, right or wrong, this is just my own personal thought. People didn't bring their kids because they didn't want to have to answer questions they yes. weren't ready to answer. I think yeah. you're absolutely right about that. You know, I think that that's that's why we keep our children in the dark because we don't want to have to confront the situation and you know, upset them, upset ourselves. We really just want to avoid that. And then it, it just, you know, it just makes everything spin, you know, out of control, I think even, even longer. And then you're alone doing it versus if you can do it together and kind of help pull one another up. I, I just learned so much, even on my mom's deathbed, she was still teaching about death and dying. Um, she was pretty much comatose, but she was coming to me in yeah. dreams. And a few months prior, she told me I wouldn't be there when she died. And I'm like, but I'm that person. I mean, I'm always that person Mm -hmm. who's sitting bedside with somebody. And she's like, nope, I need you gone. I need to know you're still going to do this work, you know, that we've created. And the rest of them have to be present. And they they need to be part of the dying process. So like four months, I, I think it was like four months later, three, four months later, literally, I have two keynotes in Arizona. And so I have to go because I don't have anyone to replace me. And I felt comfortable doing that because I knew that's what my mom wanted. Mm -hmm. But what I didn't realize, I I had prepared myself to stay in touch by phone, but we ended up FaceTiming and we had these miraculous conversations I had with my, with my, not so much conversation with my mom, but I could talk to her, you know, but she couldn't really respond to me. But I could even get my family in line when my older brother was just getting everybody like twisted up. You know, I could crack a joke and put him in his place and cut the ice, you know, (laughs) over video. And I I could guide them to do different things like, you know, get get cold washcloths and get swabs and ice chips. I could do all of that by video, but they could physically do it and be part. And it was so beautiful. I mean, I got to take yeah. part in the last rites. I mean, I, there was nothing I'm, I'm, I didn't even miss her taking her last breath. I got to see that. And so yeah. she orchestrated, I, I believe she orchestrated it to a T, but that was just a really important thing to her. All of her life was that people learn to accept, you know, death and birth as equal, you know, this yeah. is the cycle that we live in. And I thought she just did it in a really, really amazing, amazing way. Never heard it put that way before. I do think that they have just just a tiny little bit of control sometimes. Mm-hmm. Because what I hear, I would even say more often than not, much more often, most of the time, uh, people will say to me, you know, I was I was with my husband, my wife, my mother, my father the whole time. And then I left to get a sandwich and they passed or I had to get a shower or I thought they were OK, you know, and, and this is something that I just hear all the time. It's just that that small window of time when they're gone is when their loved one passes. And I just can't help but think that there's a reason for that. I don't know if it's too hard for them to leave when you're there. I, I don't know if they want the circumstance to be just right. Like, I think maybe that's what your mom wanted. I don't know. I don't understand it, but, but it just, it happens. 
in, in my experience, talking to people almost every time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's remarkable. It, it really, it really is. I've, I've had some interesting, you know, death experiences where my, um, my uncle came to me in a dream and I literally, I mm-hmm. thought he was alive. And at the end of my bed talking to me mm-hmm. and he had been dead probably nine years. And I, and then I woke mm-hmm. up like looking for him and he, he wasn't there, but he, his wife was dying. Um, and he came to me with his arms wide open and he said with this big beautiful smile and his just twinkling blue eyes and he said you have to go tell Kay it's time and I'm here and the others are here to bring her and so I laid in bed kind of thinking what should I do and I'm like well you better get in the shower and get down to the hospital (laughs) so so I run down to the hospital and um as I'm, as I'm walking in the door, the hospice nurse grabs me and says, honey, I just want to prepare you. She's not going to respond. She's not going to talk. She's not going to smile. She's not going to open her eyes. She's not going to squeeze your hands, but she will hear everything you have to say. So just say whatever it is. <laughs> and so I sit down to, next to my auntie Kay and I hold her hand and, and I start just yapping about anything and nothing. Cause I was nervous to tell her this story because she was really, really Catholic. And I thought she might just look at this as really goofy, you mm-hmm. know? And then, yeah. then after like 45 minutes, I ran out of stuff to say. And I'm like, okay, Annie Kay, I'm just going to tell you why I'm here. And then I, <laughs> I explained how my uncle looked and what he said. She squeezed my hand. Her eyes popped open. She got this big, beautiful smile. She just stared up at the ceiling and the room just got chilly. And that wow. lasted probably you know, only five or 10 seconds, not very long. And then she um, closed her eyes. She squeezed my hand, but her smile stayed. And I stayed with her about 20 more minutes and just talked with her. And, and then I went home and about an hour later, I got the call that she passed. And it was just, it was such a beautiful experience, but their kids were upset with me that, that their dad Mm -hmm. came to me you know, why didn't he come to us? And, and it was almost like kind of a jealousy type thing is what it felt like to me. And I said, because you weren't ready, you couldn't, you couldn't deal with that. And, and he knew it was her time. Yeah. And And, and which one would he choose? Yep. Which ones would he not? Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, it was a few years later, they, um, I mean, and we talked, they said, thank Mm -hmm. you. You know, Mm. that that was the right thing to do. You're right. We wouldn't have been able to handle it because then we would have been grieving him on top of losing mom. It's interesting, all the unknowns, um, but I I do believe that there's a lot of um, beauty within that. One of the big lessons I always try to to teach people, and I never realized this until my dad died, because I spun when he died. I kept reliving him dying over and over and and when he passed, I had my hand on his chest telling him he could go. And I felt the energy go up my arm, wow. literally. And, um, and I just, I kept looping and looping and looping. So I went and I talked to somebody about that. And, and I finally came to the realization that you can't, you can't grieve that deeply or, you know, feel that sad, whatever words you want to use without loving that deeply that's right you know and and that always helps pull me out going how lucky was I to have loved that deeply to hurt this bad you know um because so many people never never you know experience that other side so I think anything that we can do to 
to help explain that to people, I think is just really, really beautiful thing. And I, I highly encourage people to go ahead and, and talk to a psychologist. I mean, you guys are so helpful, can just help balance us because I, I think so often people think, am I, am I going crazy? Why are these emotions so strong? Or why can't I control this pattern of whatever it is? You know, I've always been in control. And then people just a lot of times feel lost. They absolutely do. And depending on the circumstances. But I mean, what what you're explaining, right, is very much anxiety. Anxiety Mm -hmm. makes itself worse. You know, Mm -hmm. you get you become anxious and then you become anxious about the symptoms that you have about anxiety mm-hmm. <laughs> and the very nature of anxiety is to take things to the worst case scenario as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think it's very important to have an understanding of that, that that's what this is, you know, when you're feeling those moments. And, and I think that that's the answer to a lot of things, you know, a, a lot of things are really big. Dementia is a really big tower of blocks, right? You want to break mm-hmm. it down into small digestible, understandable pieces you know, and that's, that's the job of a psychologist, you know, if the psychologist is, is on your team, well, let me do that. Let me be the one who, you know, I've studied this for years, and I've seen it so many times. Let me be the one who says, well, here's, here's a small piece, a small Mm -hmm. piece of, you know, dementia, a small, you know, uh, one thing that you can do. So, you know, your grandma or mom can't take care of the house anymore. Well, that's okay. Maybe you could look at it differently. You know, she doesn't Mm -hmm. understand what you're saying anymore. Well, look her in the eyes and, and speak more slowly, or, you know, these are little bits and pieces of information that you can have and use and take with you to understand. Because once you understand it's, it's really hard to be angry, you know, with yourself. It's, and it's, it, it's hard to be angry with the other person. And it just helps us to accept better the situation that we've been given. Exactly. You take away that aloneness, you know, when, when there's somebody else. Yeah supporting you. I mean, that's huge. That's, I mean, and we, you know, we've heard so much about the anxiety people have felt through COVID and the social isolation. A lot of times with grief and loss, people do get socially isolated. They just, they don't want people around them. They, they don't know what to say. They sometimes can push back at things um, and people want to help and yet we don't always know how to help and stuff. So everyone reacts a little bit differently you know, to, yeah. to their grief. Some are willing to show it and some aren't. And that's right. And in both ways, you know, cause I'm sure some friction <laughs> with, within the person, no matter what it is when you're, cause you're still processing. That, it's very, very important to understand that everybody grieves differently, mm-hmm. you know, and you need to accept that. And if you know that the person, uh, your brother, your sister, whoever it is, if you know that that person loved the person who passed, then you need to accept the way that they're grieving. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, there's so many family fights, this one's not grieving enough, this one cries too much, this one can't stop this or that or the other. And then you end up angry with each other, you know, but no, you need to just accept, accept, however, they are grieving, you know, be there, you want to be the companion. You want to, you know, as, as Alan Wolfell says beautifully in so many of his books, you know, you want to be there as a companion. You want to be there as somebody who can support, uh, not put the person down and, and not fall apart. Just be there to listen and let them tell their story and honor the person who they miss. Yeah, that's, that is a real important piece. And it's, and it's a difficult thing to do for a lot of people to get to that acceptance. 
for everybody is the same, kind of like with dementia, people like, well, well, they can't have it because, you know, my parent didn't act like that, you know, or my mm-hmm. symptoms. I mean, you, you get these battles and it's like, gets down to when you've met one person with dementia, you've met one, just like when you've met one human being, you've met one. <laughs> we, we all tick That's a little right. bit differently. <laughs> you know, we have different triggers and, and joys and habits and all kinds of things. Acceptance and patience, I think, are the two biggest pieces that can bring peace to people dealing with dementia or any type of grief. I agree. I agree. Understanding it and accepting it and just, um, you know, recognizing, like you said, that people are different and different in how they cope, different in what they do and, and just different in personality you know, mm-hmm. and, and different in going through the stages of dementia too. You, some people have these wild fantasies about, uh, one, the one thing I hear often is, you know, men imagining that they're war heroes, right. Mm-hmm. That they're saving the ship, you know, and, and it's okay to just go along with it and accept that that's what they are, you know, yep. sooner or later, whatever blog you might read or webinar you might go to or article or book or whatever sooner or later if the book is about alzheimer's or dementia the author will say in their own way you have to learn to be where they are right mm-hmm. yeah i might say you you have to learn to to think with a brain that works like theirs because they're not really going to uh think with a brain that works like yours right you have to come from their place and you have to understand them yep yeah, and there's that there's that other saying too. You're never going to win an argument with the person with dementia because that <laughs> the, the rationale. And again, it depends yeah. on where they are in the progression. Because uh, I, I know in the beginning stages, my mom still trumped me out a few times, you know, in arguments. And, <laughs> and so uh, you know, there's those moments of clarity. And uh, but I think if we focus yeah. on on joy and believing that it still exists and that our yeah. connections are still there and that we're not handing them over to the disease. I think that's probably one of the most devastating things that I hear Mm. families do is Mm. they lose hope and they give up their connection because that's what they've been told through old school information. That's right. It's it's easier, right? That's what Mm. other people say. Why would you want to, you know, why would you want to keep going back? Why would you do that to yourself? And yet that's not, that's not the way to go, right? And yep. I think Tipa Snow said it very well too. You know, it, it's not unusual to uh, look up dementia and see a picture of a young, healthy brain compared to a brain after dementia and look at the mm-hmm. comparison, you know, and, and Tipa mentioned, well, yeah, there's a big difference between brain number one and brain number two, but there is also a lot of years between brain yep. number one and brain number two. And there is still so much left to do. You have to make the most, she says, of, of what you have, of what is left and gracefully let go of, of what's left, of what yep. you don't. And I think that that's just so beautifully said. You don't want to miss those moments, you know, those moments mm-hmm. that you have where you could maybe still travel. You know, I mean, we're talking about uh, typically 10 years, for you, which is a long time for you. It was three long times, mm-hmm. right? But um, you have some time still to enjoy things, to get your affairs in order, to fill out these grandma books, like, you know, to to fill out these stories and leave your legacies the way that you want to leave your legacy and, um, and just enjoy the moments, give quality to the life. Yep. Well, and we're seeing people live longer too, because they're getting diagnosed Mm -hmm. younger, 
you know, and even though they say young diagnosis, I mean, some, some with early onset can go faster, but there's people like my mom, you know, 55, she lived till 86 and the first 10 years, you know, she was misdiagnosed. He kept saying it was her um, hormones and my mom would joke, this ain't my girlfriend's hormones, but we still hear those (laughs) stories today from people in terms of, of what's going on. But I, I personally believe that social engagement and feeling purposeful and accepted mm-hmm. allows us to live longer, makes us want to live longer, makes us all want to live longer when we feel connected in a personal dimension is no different on that. So, so focusing on those abilities versus the disabilities and the loss, um, I think people can be really surprised at what somebody is still able to do, like you mentioned travel. And, you know, Mm -hmm. there's groups working on travel. Um, Right now, our Roseville group is working with a a international group on um, getting TSA trained. And there's a sunflower lanyard that the airports are using. And there's, there's lots of, there's books written about travel and dementia. And there's travel companions. There's all kinds of different things out there that people are looking at. So don't give up hope. And if, if you're listening and, and think of an idea, you know, don't poo poo it, go for it, try it, you know, right. see how to improve the world. I mean, little steps by all of us, you know, make the world a better place and, you know, pick up Linda's book. I, I think, and what, what's the best way for them to get that Linda? is it to go to your website or. You can go to my website. It's also available on Amazon. Okay. Uh, Walmart, Target, Barnes and Noble. Okay. So it's available all over. I would love for you to visit my website, Wise and Worth Listening To, for seniors who I think are wise and worth listening to. And if you have a story to tell, if you have a letter to write to someone, if you want to explain what it's like to get older or maybe have dementia, live with somebody with dementia, or maybe you live through an interesting time in history, please come and, and contribute to the website. I'd love to give you the opportunity to, uh, to do what we do all the time, you know, express ourselves on online. I think that's great. And I think there's so many people looking for that opportunity. Uh, um, One of the, one of the things I I find with a lot of people going through this is they don't realize what a resource they are. You know, if they're, if they're living with it, if they're a family caregiver, you know, they just look at, well, I'm a person living with a diagnosis or, or, you know, I'm a, I'm a family caregiver. And it's like, you are both a wealth of information. <laughs> don't <laughs> don't right. fool yourself because you're not fooling the rest of us. We know how much knowledge you have. We just need to find more comfortable spaces for them to enter uh, and want to share that because mm-hmm. they they are so, so informative. They are. Um, so again, the website is wise and worth listening to.com. And you can email Linda at dr linda g a n z at gmail.com she is also on linkedin and on um, instagram and twitter as dr spelled out linda g so thank you so much linda for spending this time with us today i think you gave people a lot of great ideas one last question i guess for you you mentioned you're in the New York area. If there's somebody in another um, state, can you help them? Are you licensed in other areas? 
I am currently uh, licensed to uh, to practice psychology in New York and in Florida, um, and I'm working on extending that to uh, to to all the different states. Mm-hmm. But at this moment, that's uh, that's not an option for me. But it's coming. It's okay. coming, and I do have webinars. Uh, that I would love to have people attend that may be helpful if that's what if that's something they're looking for. And those would be listed on leaders. your on your site then? That's right. And I have one coming up on July 10th, uh, more feeling less thinking, the the role of compassion in dementia and Alzheimer's care. Wonderful. Well, jot that down on the calendar, July 10th. Um, go to her Thank site you. and register for that. Thank you so much, Linda. Really appreciate your time today. Well, thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. And for our listeners, I hope you like, click, and share this episode. Uh, There's always so much we can learn. So it's good for us to all pass this to our circles because there's a lot of people in our own circles that are dealing with dementia that we don't even know about because they're not comfortable speaking about it. But what I have found is the more information that's out there, the more comfortable they'll feel like accessing it when the time is right for them. So thanks everybody. Have a wonderful week. Bye-bye. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey everybody, Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what could be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire, become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.